Well, good evening, Dina. Uh, welcome to my home. My name is Jesse, if you don't know me, and if you're watching this and you haven't met me. Um, I am in my home because of the virus and all of the restrictions on larger gatherings, and John asked me to, to share a simple word this evening with you that has done me well over the years. Um, it just finished raining and storming uh, very heavily outside of my home, and so there's God gave us a few puddles to play in after a video to to go outside and enjoy or, or stay inside. But um, would you pray with me and we'll start a study this evening that I hope will give you the encouragement that it's given me and my wife um, through very difficult times and um, has just been very practically helpful. So pray with me and then let's get started. Father in heaven, um, you are not surprised by anything. You are not up at night biting your nails. Um, you are on your throne, reigning and ruling. Whether we are asleep, whether we are awake, whether we worry, whether we are at peace, whether there is a virus or whether we are healthy, you are on your throne and you are God. And so, Father, we ask that you might receive glory and praise um, that is due your name honor that it will be ascribed to you, Father. I pray that um, though I am an unfit and unworthy vessel to share your eternal truth, I pray that your spirit might enable me to do so. Uh, I'm not used to speaking to a camera, but um, I am still privileged for the opportunity to speak about you. And so, Father, for this word that might be shared tonight, I pray that it would um, rest well in the hearts of those who hear it and might give them even just a snippet of encouragement. And so we ask this of your grace because we do not deserve anything except your grace, um, which you so freely give. Um, we don't deserve your grace, but Father, you give it anyways. And so we ask your mercies upon tonight and that you would keep us safe through storms and through wet roads and through sicknesses. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these are unusual and unprecedented times. Um, some are suffering from virus uh, or global side effects that has produced. There's been severe job losses and job losses to come, people being laid off in the restaurant industry um, and the retail industry where sales have just exponentially dropped and so owners are forced to also drop their employees. And so there's more than just sickness, but there is uh, a suffering of circumstance where now certain families and are worrying about if food can be put on the table, if bills can be paid. Um, there are still others that, uh, even if it's not the virus that's going around, they're still suffering from the flu, from pneumonia, or just the everyday wearing down of a broken body. Uh, even listening to this, you might be feeling a knee ache or a back ache from an old injury or for um, something that has happened to you in your past and it has remained with your body and has never healed. And you are experiencing one of the elements of what it is to live within a broken body and a broken world. Um, and even past this, um, there are whole populations of countries that are um, suffering under regimes and unjust governments or 
might be going through chaotic leadership transition. And so I think really one of the, the takeaways I've been thinking about lately is that the suffering that people have been put through, whether directly by the virus or inadvertently through its circumstances, is that the suffering of this virus is one among many sufferings. Uh, anywhere you look, you turn on the news, if you type in the Dallas news, Manhattan news, LA news, Florida news, you're going to see tough things. At the global scale, you're going to see tough things. Now, there are good things that happen, but you will always have an abundance of information that have to do with difficulty. And I think it's been this way since Genesis 3. From, from the sweat of your brow, you will eat its fruit. And cursed be the ground because of you. And we have experienced suffering and toil and tribulation for a long, long time. Um, and I think that this virus has kind of reawakened a sense of that in some people and in me that there is something wrong with this world. Um, even in its goodness and that it does reflect God's glory, it sings of God's glory, it tells us of his divine nature and his eternal attributes. But there are aspects of it, uh, like a virus, um, like suffering, like death, like cancer, where you look at it and you say, that's wrong. That's not supposed to be there. So where does this put our routine daily walk with God? Will God, like the schools and public gatherings, ask us to close down? Now, we are not gathering on Sunday or we're not gathering on Thursday uh, in person, per se. But what does that mean for us while we're in our homes with our families? Does that mean that our walk with God is also shut down? Um, is God up biting his nails? Among all of the news and all the stuff that I was seeing and, and now I'm kind of being reawakened to its thoughts and awareness is what about those people who don't have what we have? A guaranteed future. What about the people who don't have what we, um, what the scripture says that we've received a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and self-control and that perfect love casts out fear. What if you don't have that? What if your happiness and your joy was entirely dependent on positive circumstances? Then in a situation like this where global economies, airlines, all these things are shutting down, then happiness and joy tends to go right out the window. So wh where is my sanity and my joy? Is it dependent on the same things? And I think the, the easy answer is no, it's not. But practically, I think a lot of times it is if we don't remind ourselves of truths. Um, truths in the Christian life, in, in our own hearts, we need so much reminding of truths that we already know, but we just kind of forget about for a spell. Um, and it's easy to fall into the same anxieties and the same worries that the world falls into if we don't remind ourselves and look back and say, hey, these are promises that God has given us. And he hasn't stuttered. Um, he hasn't said, there's a little asterisk of, of your joy in the Lord, your joy of the future because of the past. Um, so I want to talk about it through a passage, and that will be found in Romans chapter 5 in the opening couple of verses. Um, 
the last couple of years of my life have been not this last calendar year, but the few before it um, were the hardest of my life. Um, was just experienced a lot of death and tragedy, experienced difficult circumstances. Um, I never thought by the time I was 24 that I would have um, spoken at two funerals for my sister and then for um, a dear brother in Christ that I was able to walk with before uh, he went to be with the Lord um, in a, from a car wreck. Um, and those were immeasurable times of grief in my life and in my wife's. Um, and this passage, after studying it a little bit in school, and it has done wonders for the comfort of my soul and the creation of a hope for the future. Um, and so I hope it does the same thing for, with you. So before we look at a few of the verses in chapter 5 and then and then end in prayer, I want to set up a little bit of where we are in the geography of the book of Romans. Um, in chapter 1, you kind of have a theme verse or two verses of chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation for the, unto those who believe, first the Jew, then to um, the Gentile. And it is from faith to faith, for it is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so, really off the bat, Paul starts with the fundamentals of why he's writing the book. And it is the gospel. And it is the gospel that unites people. So, the church of Rome, or the church that was in Rome, and those Christians were having a difficult time getting along together. Um, and so... Jews didn't really like worshiping with Gentiles, and Paul was kind of repairing some of those relationships as the letter went. But those that's kind of the theme uh, verse you can look at the whole book uh, as a lens through. Then um, chapter 1, eight, starting in verse 18 through the third chapter in, in 320, you really have this entire section that has to do with the failures of humanity. You could call it uh, the reason for faith. So faith is the reception of God's gospel in 16 and 17 and the just shall live by faith. And then 118 through 320 is the reason for faith. And that reason is all people have failed. And where he summarizes it in 323 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, first, it's, he mentions the Gentiles in chapter 1, where they are without excuse. The Jews, you are without excuse. Then 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So the reason for faith is that by people's own effort, they will never approach God, and they will never be united or reconciled with Him. They must believe in something that is provided for them. They must trust in something other than themselves. Um, then 21, um, 321 through 31 is kind of a, well, 321 through 4 is this section kind of on justification of the believer. So justified meaning um, in the sight of God is that it is as though the believer has never even sinned in the sight of God. And 321 through 31 is kind of the forensics of how that came to be. The forensics of faith. So 
you saw the reason for faith in those first couple of chapters. Now you see the forensic of faith, and it is by the justification of God. And through redemption, and redemption is a, a, the term that was used um, a lot of times in the market or sometimes for um, ancient slavery, and it was a price that was paid that bought someone's freedom. And the price that was paid for us to buy our freedom from ourselves, from sin, from the powers of darkness, from the grip of death, was the propitiation or the offering of Christ's blood. And that satisfied the wrath of God. And those who trust in the sufficient work of Christ's shed blood on the cross, it covers them and the price has been paid for their penalty and for their sin, and they are justified in the sight of God. Then in chapter 4, you see the founder of faith, uh, and that, namely that is Abraham. So Paul gives an example of Abraham to kind of um, make the point that this New Testament faith, saving faith, is not a new concept. It goes all the way back to Abraham in chapter 15, verse 6 um, of Genesis Abraham, it is spoken of Abraham, and it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, or imputed to him, as righteousness. All Abraham did was say, all right, God, I believe that you're going to do what you say, apart from my effort and apart from my dealings and doings, and I just believe it. I trust that you do what you promise you will do. And for that, God says, I impute that as righteousness. And his example is, is that it, be, it came before any law. It came 400 years before Moses gives the Ten Commandments and uh, adherence and obedience to the law. It comes before the sign of circumcision that will mark Jews um, as set apart from the Gentile world. Before any of that, faith or belief was the thing that acquired God's righteousness into the sinner's life into the sinner's soul um, so he says this isn't a new thing now we find ourselves at the focal point of our study and that is really verses um, 1 through 5 and um, so let's read verses uh, 1 through 5 and then we'll go into a few points and dynamics of it and see what we see verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, in verses 1 through 2, we're going to summarize a few things because I really want to focus on verses 3 through 5. Um, but in verses 1 through 2, there's four things um, that I want to just bring to light um, that Paul is going to bring to light in, in context of what he's just covered in the first four chapters. Um, now, the things that I want to observe or the things that I bring out, this is in by no means an exhaustive study of these verses, and there is stuff that I will miss, and there is stuff that um, I might have to pass over, but um, in broad strokes, here are four things. First, 
um, unity is achieved in the gospel. So verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the pronoun we has not really been um, used much, in the, at least positively, in the book up to this point. So in chapter 1, Paul is addressing the Gentiles, and, he's, and, and the Jews really have a problem with the Gentiles entering into worship with them. And he says, hey, the Jews, they are without excuse. They're, they're separated over here. Yeah, they're without excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1, you are without excuse, you who judge. Um, and then in um, uh, chapter 3, all have sinned. And then now for the first time, positively, he says, therefore, we, we have been justified, uh, or we have peace with God. And it is a unifying entity. And it kind of is reminiscent of uh, Psalm 133, that how blessed it is and how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And this is what the gospel does, is it brings people who are equally condemned to be equally justified. That there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, free nor slave, but Christ is all in all. It is an even playing field. doesn't matter if you've been... I believe you're 60 years or six months or six minutes. You are on the same playing field, and there's a unity that happens from there. Second is um, something that is fundamentally huge is we have peace. We have peace. And not just uh, a zen or um, a meditative peace where we say, I'm going to block out all the circumstances and feelings and things that I'm uh experiencing in this moment in order to just be a blank slate no christianity is much more raw and real than that and he says peace with god it is a mended relationship now i think it's part civil and i think it's part relational civil in the aspect of a an eternal peace treaty has been arrived at an eternal ceasefire because up to the point of our justification, we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, as verse 6, 7, and 8, um, and through 9 explained to us, we were the enemies of God, and we were opposed to His will, opposed to His word, opposed to His righteousness, and we were at war in our hearts, whether we admitted it by our mouth or not. There was a fundamental aspect of our nature that was not um, at peace with God. But through his initiation and his actions and his faithfulness, he has made a treaty with us, a ceasefire. Um, uh, Ephesians 2 comes to mind that you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you formerly walked, um, obeying uh, the prince of the power of the air and that now works in the sons of the disobedience. Um, and so uh, a treaty has come. But the other part is relational. And by that, I mean that we literally find peace with God and in God. Uh, a reconciliation has happened, a mended relationship. A, a divorce has come back to a functional marriage. Estranged siblings have united again, and they're speaking again, like Joseph and his brothers, where they haven't seen each other for years. You would think that they would be uh, embittered towards each other, but estranged siblings... They now come together, and they're in unity. Um, 
And that is what has happened between us and God at the moment of justification. There is an eternal peace that we will, that we have and will always have with him. So we have an assurance. Um, Ephesians 2 um, says, He himself is our peace who has taken down the divided wall. Be anxious for nothing, but rather through prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses understanding will fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, the benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord um, lift up his uh, face upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of, uh, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And it even comes to mind Psalm 23, um, that he leads me besides quiet waters. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. He refreshes my soul. And this is what we have with God now. Uh, and it, we fundamentally did not have that before the moment of our conversion. Um, and so there has been a complete reversal in the nature of who we are, what we love, what we desire, what we hate, what we abhor. Um, and this is why Paul says in 10 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. The third thing is, is that we now have free, unhindered access to the blessings and benefits of knowing God. Um, look at verse 2. Through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. Or you, if you read an ESV, it will say um, we have obtained access into this grace. Um, uh, by faith in which we now stand. And what's interesting is um, seeing something between standing and falling, and if you'll remember in 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there it's speaking of self-effort. So in self-effort and self-declaration um, of I'm going to earn my way to God, I will get to Him, then we are in a perpetual state of failure and of falling. But in God's gospel, by faith alone, we are in a perpetual state of standing. Unmerited, um, unearned, but we stand confidently before God, knowing that we can know Him, we have peace with Him, and we are unified with Him and His people by the means that He has provided by nothing that we have done. You've been saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, that not of yourselves, so that no man may boast. Um, and so there has been a fundamental um, shift in not only our, our state of relationship with God, but now it's not just I forgive you and you can stay over there and I won't kill you. It's I forgive you and come, enter. Uh, Hebrews says that we boldly approach the throne of grace. That we can come to God as Christ comes to God because what is true of Christ is now true of us because of our union with him. Um, what, what's interesting about this is that broken, fallen sinners, enemies of God, formerly, but who still have sinful tendencies and, and sinful desires, sinful actions sometimes, Yet those who are justified, they should not be able to stand in front of a holy God. Um, Beethoven, he was deaf, not just tone deaf. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole other different matter, but he could not hear sound. 
and yet he wrote his seventh symphony, orchestrated it, and delivered it into a crowd of people. Deaf people shouldn't be able to stand up and deliver a masterpiece of symphony and orchestra and melody. And sinners shouldn't be able to stand in front of God. But that's why it's called amazing grace. How can it be? Not, it's okay grace. I guess it's so. That's why it is called amazing grace. Well, the fourth thing is that um, because of all these things, something is elicited of our emotion, of our soul, of our heart, of our mind. And it is this, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, or we exult, or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Um, now, whenever the word hope here is used, um, it's not something that would be likened to wishful thinking. So wishful thinking would be, I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow. Now, the weather report says that that hope is probable, but it is not sure. Um, rather, this hope is likened more to knowledge. It is something that is known and therefore can be rejoiced in, not um, speculated about. It is something that is sure. And there's two reasons, um, I think, that in this verse that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, when that, that phrase, the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope um, of the assurance of our salvation. So the glory of God is that glory which finishes what he begins, which assures what he starts. So um, in the end of chapter 8, it says, What can separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? His end answer, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. So there is a rejoicing because of our assurance of our eternal peace with God. But there's also uh, a rejoicing that I think is found in the hope of the completion of our salvation. So we have a, a hope in the assurance of our salvation, but we also have a hope in the completion of our salvation, which is what Paul talks about in chapter 8 of Romans. That um, he will uh, bring us into a glorified state. And Philippians 3, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. Um, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So there is something and a day that we are waiting for with great expectancy and with knowledge, not wishful thinking, that this will happen. I can rest in the fact that I will never lose what God has given He's an eternal God. He does not give temporal promises in his New Testament. Um, and I can rest and rejoice in the hope that he will complete what he finishes. Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Um, so if we have a sure future, what might our troubled present produce? The We know what's coming. And so what about the coronavirus? What about job layoffs? What about the market crashing to some extent? Um, what about pneumonia? What about cancer? What about death? What about disease? What about car wrecks? What about all of these things? How do we respond to that? Um, 
I was reading a book a while ago, and it was just recounting uh, as a book about idols that can creep into society, to culture, and to believers. And it made mention of the stock market crash in 08, in September of 08. And that day, there were many people that had to receive um, traumatic counseling because they witnessed horrific events because multiple CEOs of large companies decided to take their own life by jumping off of skyscrapers in New York because the circumstance of the stock market had changed. So how do we respond then to moments of crisis? How do we do this? Well, um, let's read 3 through 5 and see what we can glean from it. Not only this, but we also exult or we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, in our assurance, in our completion, and in the glorious glory of God to begin and finish and sustain what he starts. Not only that, and this is the, the wonders of the gospel, is that the, the glories of the gospel is that they are many, not just one thing. God doesn't just forgive, but he also purifies and sanctifies. He doesn't just do that. He glorifies and assures and keeps us, and he provides us with all that we need and are in necessity of. So, but before we go further, um, if you're reading NASB or, or ESV, you would you would either have the word uh, in verse three of suffering or tribulations, and I want to give a couple of possibilities um, that can be applied to that word. Um, I think that are found within the book of Romans. So I'm trying not to extend my reach too far, but to just give a few possibilities of what some of the sufferings might be and. And they might be something that you're experiencing now. And the first is um, a natural suffering or a natural tribulation. And this is, um, could fall into the categories of tragic storms, um, sicknesses, disease, and death. Uh, a biblical example of this might, um, you could say Job. Um, through whirlwinds and fires, he loses his family, his, all of his possession um, due to... Um, fire and storms and, and things that uh, occur in nature. And a, th a second one I think would be, so the first one is a natural suffering, things that happen to us um, that we experience from the result of living in a broken world. The second is a moral suffering and so this would come from persecution, uh, persecution for faith, um, genocides, thefts, murders, and I think uh, a biblical example would be Joseph. So Joseph undergoes moral suffering from his brothers, from um, false accusations, from forgetful prison inmates when he has done nothing wrong. Um, a great example would be Jesus, that he suffered by the moral evil wills of uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and ultimately Satan himself. Um, and a third one, this is a little bit more uh, inconspicuous, but I do think that it's more of a principle rather than um, 
directly in the verse is that we suffer with ourselves. Uh, that is, we suffer with the pains of a sinful nature. And I think that um, Paul makes mention of this in, in chapter 7, that he has the desire to do good, but the very thing that he wants to do, he does not do. Instead, he does the, he does the thing that he hates. And he surmises the chapter by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Um, and it's because of this suffering with our sin nature um, as justified believers that you see this terminology all throughout Scripture of I buffet my body and I make it my slave so that when I preach to others, I myself might not become, um, uh, you know the word, it, it, it escapes me. Um, well, I'm blank there. Um, but all throughout we see this bodily discipline um, to bring into subjection our sin nature. Um, to bring about the things that we actually do desire. The de desires of the flesh are opposed to that of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And the, the deeds of the flesh are manifest. And he gives you a list. But the fruit of the Spirit are brum. And they are in opposition to each other. And so, in a sense, we do suffer with our own sinful thoughts, with our own sinful deeds and desires. And this is something that will not be eradicated until we have the hope of our future glory accomplished in us. And that there will be no more sin, no more sorrow. And this is part of the hope of the gospel. Um, but um, moving on, there's one thing that we see about God in his use of suffering in our life um, that he uses and that is it is productive suffering is productive in the believer's life it produces something and I don't get that from my own thought I just get it from the verses we rejoice in suffering because we know that suffering brings about or produces perseverance or endurance it produces in us a spiritual stamina um, if I am persecuted for righteousness sake or if I am undergoing sickness if I am um, struggling with the flesh but seeing God is faithful that sees me through it it is producing something and that is endurance or perseverance and perseverance doesn't remain in isolation. Perseverance produces, there's the idea again, and it produces character. Character is something that you might think of as being set in stone. And so C.S. Lewis says that the greatest way to overcome habit is habit. And enduring suffering with the faith that God will accomplish what he promises, is accomplishing it in this moment, and that it is guaranteed. It builds into us this character, this set-in-stoneness about us. And character doesn't end there. It says, proven character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Now, you see there that in verse 2 that we rejoiced in hope of the glory of God, and now suffering actually produces it. So it's really, really incredible that in unfavorable circumstances is when the light switch for the believer actually comes on and God says, ah, this is our time. This is when I'm going to grow you. 
Um, all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, you see those who follow Christ will be persecuted. John 7, 7. They do not hate you. They hate me because I testify of its deeds that its works are evil and that those who follow him will be followed um, by persecution, by mockery, or by difficult times. There's nothing about the Christian that is exempted from a hailstorm like last night um, than one who was not. And so um, in the midst of this, we have this glorious assurance why we can have a hymn that says, It is well with my soul when sorrows like sea billows roll. It is well with my soul. And at the end of that hymn, it's when we've been there 10,000 years um, that he can look at his present in light of future realities. Um, so one technical thing is that in 3 through 5, this would be what you might call a chain argument or a sorieties um, or a heap argument where basically you have one proposition and the next proposition is built on top of it until another proposition and then you wind up at a conclusion. Uh, an example would be of a, of a chain argument where it would be this. Uh, poodles are dogs. Dogs are mammals. Mammals are living beings. Therefore, poodles are living beings. So what you do is you connect the very first statement and then you connect it with the very last statement and that is your conclusion. And so if we kind of take these statements out of suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope that does not put us to shame or, uh, or confident hope, um, what is the conclusion? Um, kind of boiled down, it would be this, I think, that suffering produces confident hope. So all I did was just kind of reverse um, hope does not put us to shame. The opposite of not being put to shame is confidence. That hope produce or suffering produces confident hope. And incidentally, what's so wonderful about Paul is his immersion in biblical language. And that all throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament, you see this phrase, um, especially in the Psalms, but also in the prophets, of those who put their trust or those who put their hope in the Lord will not be put to shame. So all he is doing is continuing the language from the Old Testament straight into the New, which is glorious. But the conclusion of this chain argument, suffering produces confident hope. Why? Why does it do that? Why would suffering, uh, either by natural suffering, moral suffering, or suffering with my own sin nature, um, as God is sanctifying me out of those desires and deeds, why would it produce confident hope? Well, verse 5 tells us, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, I was listening on the radio this morning and um, all sports are canceled right now. NBA is postponed. The NFL just had their first um, confirmed case with Sean Payton. Um, and a big ticket item is that NCAA March Madness, the basketball tournament, uh, a highly anticipated thing is canceled and where seniors potentially might not get to play in it um, if they don't get their eligibility back and, but it's canceled so what sports um, radio uh, stations and TV stations are doing is they're taking old classic games or just really well-known national championship games and they are putting them up on the TV 
or on the radio for you to listen play by play. And uh, one that they're talking about that's going to be on tonight is an uh, is not a national championship, but it's it comes before that in the playoff. And it's Magic Johnson's team versus Larry Bird's. And I was not alive then, so I'm not familiar with their teams and and who won and which game and, and who went on to win the national championship that year. But if you were a fan during that time and that era and you watched Magic versus Larry, Larry Legend and Magic Johnson, and you know the winner, it really changes the way you watch the game, the way you listen to the game. Where somebody might roll an ankle and you say, this is doomsday, this is it. But if you know the ending, you can say, I, I know where this is going. I know who wins. So that gives you confident hope in the midst of your your turmoil of who's going to win this thing. Who's going to make the shot with two seconds left to go with Michael Jordan and the, and the Tar Heels of North Carolina to win the national championship? Who's going to do it? And as believers, we don't have to say, who's going to get us out of this mess? Who's going to get me out of this um, uh, poor situation, an unadvantaged situation? And I think that whenever Paul says we rejoice or we exult, or we boast in suffering and in the hope of the glory of God. He's not saying you have to put on your happy face and sing happy by Pharrell. There is this inward peace that will overcome you even if you are sorrowful. If you're filled with tears, you may still have joy. But joy is separable from emotions. The joy that we have in God. In fact, the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 6 is that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that is the paradigm or the dichotomy of the believer. Is even though I might be rejoicing, I can still be weeping. Even though I'm weeping, I can still be rejoicing. And that is the wonders of the gospel. My dog is here, so I'm going to get her back a little bit. Um, and this is what God accomplishes through the gospel. And so God in his gracious providence and design made it so that when we experience present suffering, it will produce a rock-solid hope for our future, uh, for our guaranteed future, by the past actions of Jesus, when God loved us while we were still his enemies. So how can suffering produce confident hope for the future because of past events again in verse 5 the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us by the deeds by the deeds of God so our future is guaranteed by our past our present is comforted by our future all of that by the faithful action of Jesus to give up his life on the cross before we ever knew him before we ever knew his name and it says in verse 8 God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us verse 6 for while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly my future I can rejoice in because I know what it holds. 
my present I can rejoice in because I know what my future holds. And I can have confidence and boasting in that fact in the working of God because of what He has accomplished in the past. So it all boils down to the glory of God. Nothing can separate it. Not sin from chapter 6, not the law from chapter 7, not anything from chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so I think as we go about these seasons, uh, the next month or two might, might be unsure, unprecedented in, in actions and responses from the government, from people, from runs on grocery stores and, and whatever else might be of, of desire and, and need for people. I hope that this can encourage you where you sit today. Maybe it is of um, you're dealing with this nagging feeling that nothing is being done because all people are just stuck in their homes. But know that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of uncomfortability, in the midst of tribulation, God is producing something. And suffering in a believer's life is effective. It brings about a result. And so as you go um, about your your deeds in your house and, and your daily life that is significantly altered for the next few weeks, the church doors at the Willow Wood might be closed down, but we as a family, we as a church, we as believers are not closed down. In fact, God... Uh, in suffering says we're open for business and and a world that's hurting and a world that's suffering needs to hear that and i think we need to hear that i need to hear that and so let's pray and uh, we'll continue on in our week father in heaven thank you that your promises are sure that we have a rock to build a foundation on that weathers the storm it does not make us exempt from the storm it allows us to go through it with confidence. It doesn't allow us to go around it. doesn't allow us to go above it or below it. But that we go straight into it. Because we know whom we have trusted. And we are persuaded that you are able to keep what you have promised to us. And entrusted to us until that day comes. That we are in your hands. And no one is greater than you. And no one can pluck us from your hands. We are your sheep and we hear your voice and you know us by name. So allow us to rest in you and to rest in your word. And Father, we ask this all of your mercy and by your grace. In the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. Have a good week, Dean.